Chapter 15, Part 1 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. The Metropolis of India and its Himalayan Sanatorium. Part 1. On this bright yet foggy morning of January 7, 1885, we find ourselves at anchor in the mouth of the Hooghly, that vast delta and network of channels where the most ancient of historical rivers, the Ganges, loses itself in the ocean. The sun is struggling through the bank of fog, and as it slowly lifts, it is difficult to believe that the broad expanse of dun-colored waters with its dim outline of mud banks forming a shore is a river and not the sea. The white tower of the lighthouse of Sauger gleams in the far distance, and the pilot and his leadsman are on board. It is 156 miles from the mouth of the Hooghly to the wharves at Calcutta, and all through the morning we are making a slow and tedious progress stopping frequently to take soundings. The Hooghly is well known as a most ticklish piece of navigation, and altogether three pilots take charge of the ship in its upward course. The pilot with his accompanying leadsman, who after five years' apprenticeship is qualified as such himself, takes the ship to Garden Reach, and then hands over the charge to the harbor master to take her into dock and the moorings. For the first hundred miles, the Hooghly is exceedingly ugly, being merely a succession of mud banks, the deposit of silt and sand left by the river as it struggles in various channels across the flat plain of the delta. But after passing Diamond Harbor, the signal station, where the arrival and departure of ships to and from Calcutta are telegraphed, the scene changes gradually. Isolated palm trees are seen in intervals along the banks, succeeded by groves and a few mud huts. We pass barges or budgeroves, laden with cargo, rowed by four natives, who step backwards and forwards, keeping time together. We observe occasionally a group of pilgrims forming a picturesque encampment on the banks, come down here for the religious ceremony of bathing. Not seldom is a dead body seen floating down the stream, with vultures sitting on it and picking at the flesh. For notwithstanding all prohibitions, the Hindu still sometimes puts a corpse in the sacred river. It was interesting passing here the Indus, a ship employed in the transport of Australian horses for the Indian market, and which we had last seen in dock in Sydney Harbour. I was sitting quietly writing in my cabin in the middle of the afternoon when I heard a tremendous scuffle overhead, accompanied by a rush to the stern. Immediately afterwards, there was that peculiar rushing of water which indicates that the rudder is being put hard aport or starboard, and, running out, I saw all the officer and sailors spinning the wheel round as hard as they could. The severe strain had snapped a link in the chain of the steering gear on the bridge, but, fortunately, that at the stern was in order, 
intensely anxious was the moment when we waited to see whether she would answer to her helm in time. Slowly, the vessel's head came round, and we floated away from the sandbank onto which she was fast drifting. The sandbanks here are quicksands, and vessels which strand are sucked down and heard of no more. The afternoon sun shone brightly as we drew near to the sea of masts and rigging that lie at anchor along the wharves, which bordered the Maidan of Calcutta. All around us is a scene of the greatest animation. The river banks are lined with ships coaling or undergoing repairs, while others lie in midstream with flats or broad boats with shallow bottoms, piled up with merchandise, discharging cargo on either side. A steamship is passing us on its way out to sea, while behind us an American vessel is being towed up to the dock. Hulks, budgerows, steam tugs, and dinghies are threading their way amongst the maze of shipping, and a goodly crowd of the latter are hovering or clinging on to our ship by means of rope and hooks, making a dash at us with the latter as we pass. These budgerows with their painted prows and covered stern resemble the gondola of Venice, but instead of the funereal black of the latter, they are painted in bright colors, blue and red and yellow, and steered by means of an oar roughly fastened by reeds to the stern. Generally, the steersman is represented by a picturesque figure wrapped in a gay counterpane or swathed in the graceful folds of muslin thrown loosely over the shoulders. We pass many factories of sugar, jute, and paper, and some pottery works. Opposite Garden Reach stands the palace of the ex-king of Oude, with its green jalousies and balconies, and its terrace overhanging the water, guarded at either end by a caged lion and tiger. Long before we approached it, we saw flocks of pigeons, white and speckled, whirling in the air. An attendant standing in the tower with a red flag was waving them home, and at the understood signal they were all circling round and setting on the flat roofs of the palace. It was the former residence of Sir Lawrence Peel, but now the palace and the beautiful suburb is abandoned to the eccentricities of the ex-king with his swarm of followers who lives here on a yearly pension of £120,000 granted by our government. Facing the palace at Seaport is Bishop's College, now used as a school for engineers, and the botanical gardens here border the river. Passing Chandalgat, the landing place, where India welcomes and speeds away her rulers, where governors-general, commanders-in-chief, judges of the high court, Bishops, all entitled to it, received the royal salute from Fort William on setting foot in the metropolis. We anchored for the night. The harbor master refused to take the Japan to her moorings till the morning. Amid great confusion, we embarked ourselves and our luggage in one of the frail and leaking dinghies, colliding and being collided with several times an unhealthy mist rising and enveloping us from the river, darkness overtaking us. We had a very uncomfortable half-hour's row to the landing stage. In the darkness of the half-gas-lighted streets, 
the natives muffled up to the eyes in their long white garments, the bullock carts, the palanquins, the garries, all looked so strange and foreign, and the noise and bustle of the streets was oppressive to us after the dead stillness of the steamer. Of course we went to the great eastern hotel. Alas, there is no choice of hotels for travelers, and the company, having the monopoly, do not exert themselves for the comfort of their visitors. The table d'hote was bewildering from the extraordinary number of servants in the room, there being from sixty to one hundred guests. The boys, or personal servants, made one row by standing each behind his master's chair, and the hotel servants another, whilst handing the dishes, not counting those who were hurrying in all directions. The noise in the Great Eastern is a perpetual torment, the doors being only protected by curtains. Voices and footsteps echo through the bare, marble-paved corridors. Kitmurgars and Chuprasis creep in noiselessly from behind the curtains, and you look up suddenly to find them there, and to wonder how long they have been standing staring at you. Ayas and tailors come to offer their services, and bric-a-brac vendors are always pushing their way into the sitting room. Thursday, January 8th. A fine spring morning to greet us for our first day in India. Not too warm, for we are fortunate in being here during one of the only three temperate months of the Indian year. Calcutta used to be known by the name of the Ditch, but now it is called the City of Palaces. I should say that the former name well applies to the native quarters and bazaars, which lie in such close juxtaposition to the handsome buildings and are so unusually narrow, crowded, and dirty. The latter speaks truly of that splendid range of buildings around Dalhousie Square and that block facing the Maiden, formed by the High Court and Government House. Dalhousie Square is the old tank square, or earlier still was called the Green Before the Fort, for the ancient fort stood on the spot where now we see the magnificent dome of the post office. Inside an arched gateway, at the side of the building, there are some remnants of the old walls of the fort. A plain square of pavement here shows the exact size and spot of the black hole of Calcutta. A short and business-like inscription is placed over the archway recording how 123 victims perished during the night of June 20th, 1757, only 23 being found alive in the morning, confined there by order of the rebel Siraj Ut Dalla. There are besides in Dalhousie Square the block of government buildings occupying the entire length of one side of it, built of dull red brick, faced with yellow stone and ending at the corner with an octagonal tower also the Telegraph Office and the Dalhousie Institute. Government House is a vast yellow structure with a small dome standing within railed gardens. The approach is very handsome, with a broad flight of steps leading to the entrance under a portico with Corinthian pillars. But it appears this is only for use on state occasions, as you are driven up to the unpretentious doorway under the entrance. Four rows with lion-guarded gateways 
lead up to the four entrances, there being one to each side of the house, and the sepoy sentries, the mounted escort waiting in attendance, and the chuprosies running hither and thither, scarlet messengers with the royal insignia that you meet in all parts of the city, form a truly viceregal surrounding. The houses in Calcutta have a very eastern appearance, being painted a pale pink or buff color, contrasting with the bright green of jalousies and balconies. Added to this, there is the strange, vivid-colored flow of life going on in the streets below. There are Mohammedans with short-waisted linen tunic, tight trousers, and huge, unwieldy turban. Hindus with the wisp of hair at the back of the head and the hideous caste mark or patch of clay smeared on the forehead, wrapped in the square of variegated cotton, the corner thrown over the shoulder. Coolies naked, save for the single strip of Muslim. A few Armenians, Chinese and Parsis, the latter with the curious semi-conical hat peculiar to that sect, mingle in the heterogeneous crowd of a great Indian metropolis. The women look so graceful in their flowing sari, draped loosely about the figure and drawn over the head, with the bright pieces of metal in the forehead or the chin, with rings and noses and ears, and silver bangles worn above the elbow, in masses on the wrist, and circling round their ankles, jangling with each movement. All the women, and nearly all the men, wear rings on their toes. Generally the sari is of white muslin bordered with a strip of red, but sometimes also it is of pink or green or even of a bright yellow gauze, a single strip that is wound round so deftly as to form an entire covering for the figure. Garys, ticker garys, or a gary of the second class, ply the streets for hire, looking with their closed sliding doors like a miniature black Mariah. So grim is the appearance of this windowless carriage. There are many palanquins, the familiar palki, painted black and supported by four hurrying, staggering coolies. Through the half-closed doors, you see the full-length figure of a luxurious native swell, smoking his hookah. Many private carriages, brogans and victorias, are about the streets occupied by the Anglo-Indian in his never-failing solar topi or tarry hat, for no one thinks of walking the length of the street in India. As you drive along, you are much bothered by natives with a miscellaneous collection of goods, beginning with Japanese trays and peacock screens, and ending with shaving brushes, soap, and hairpins, running along and thrusting their waves into the carriage. In the afternoon, we drove through the native quarter of Calcutta, through the Borough Bazaar, on our way to visit the Maharaja of Tagore. The bazaar in every Indian town is a never-failing source of interest. It is always narrow, dirty, crowded, the inhabitants popping in and out of their filthy dens, in numbers like swarms in a beehive. But the wonderful eye for color and the inborn taste of architecture that belongs to every Indian makes them marvelously picturesque and interesting. There are the carved gateways, which generally lead into the Chauk or narrow street, 
where no carriage can enter. The curiously wrought overhanging balconies with scarlet striped blinds, from behind which peep out dark-eyed notch girls. There is the minaret of a mosque in one corner, and the carved remains of a Hindu temple in the other. Here a group of men and women squatting over a hole in the earth, where they are pounding millet. There some children gnawing a stick of raw sugar cane. Donkeys, goats, and sacred bulls with bead necklaces hung around their necks wander at will about the streets. Sometimes you see a school, with the scholars squatting around their munshi under the balcony, sing-songing in that curious monotone the Hindustani lesson. All the manufacturers are carried on in the open street, whether it be spinning or dyeing, tinkering or tailoring, or that elaborate kinkob work of embroidering in gold thread. All the goods are exposed for sale on the raised step along the street, whilst the owner sits cross-legged, keeping guard over them, never in the least anxious to sell. Here you find all Indian treasures, such as cashmere and rammed pugger shawls, exquisite embroideries in silk and gold, Benares work, and gold and silver ornaments and bangles. I was disappointed not to see a greater variety of the latter, but it was explained to me that the women generally bring their own silver in rupees to be made into bangles, thus ensuring the true weight of the silver. You see quantities of the coarse millets, such as goat and bajra, which, from the chief food of the natives, spread out to dry and green and yellow heaps in the street. Rice is too expensive in Bengal, and in many parts of India, for it to be a staple food for the lower orders, and on these millets a native subsists on an average of one penny per day. In the Chauk, family women are allowed to walk, because down this inner street of the native quarter, or bazaar, no gary can come but even many of these cover their faces when abroad. Young married women and girls are only allowed to go in a sedan chair, which is a small seat carefully curtained, suspended in the shape of a tripod from a pole. Sometimes these latter peep cautiously out, but modestly withdraw at sight of us. Or again, standing at the door of their huts, women cover and flee at the approach of the Ferengis. Europeans. The Busties, or native villages, are a collection of mud huts, cramped together on the damp earth, devoid of ventilation and drainage. They are often built round a tank or pond, which serves as a deposit for their filth and refuse, the water being used at the same time for cooking and washing purposes. During the rains, the natives suffer much. Their mud huts, without foundations, settling about them, and the miasmic vapors of the overpopulated village causing a yearly epidemic of cholera. The baboos, or wealthier class, live in two-storied houses, built so as to form a hollow square, the upper story being alone used for the living rooms, and the lower one as a stable for goats and bullocks. The Indian city, if possible, generally lies along a river bank and then the bathing ghat forms a great feature to the native quarter. Men and women bathe daily, 
and some of the most picturesque and typical scenes of Indian life are to be seen in the early morning at these ghats. But to return to the Borough Bazaar, all this and a great deal more we saw, and the entire novelty added to our zest of the enjoyment of the gay surroundings. One sad little scene was taking place in a quiet corner. Under a rude canopy stood the coffin of a child, covered with a pink pall, while some women were busy laying flowers about it and hanging up tawdry bits of decoration. The Maharaja of Tekor's palace is in the midst of this native quarter. We were led through whitewashed passages, when numberless attendants were lounging about, through a balcony into a magnificent drawing room, but which was swathed even to the chandeliers in brown holland. We thought it a typical exemplification of Eastern life, magnificence with meanness, luxury with squalor and dirt. The Maharaja appeared in mourning dress, consisting of a loose drab cashmere shawl covering him from head to foot. He is a man of about 45, speaks perfect English, expresses himself with great ease and fluency, and he takes the most enlightened views on the subject of English administration. The conversation lasted for upward of two hours, for my husband is most anxious during our visit to India to hear as much as possible of the native views on Indian affairs. The Maharaja is trustee of the vernacular newspaper called the Hindu Patriot, whose editor C went to see in British India Street, which may be called the Fleet Street of Calcutta. So many members of the press are there established here. In the Maiden centers, all the attractions of Calcutta. This broad plain is truly called the Lung of Calcutta and is bordered on one side by Kauringi Road and a succession of fine palaces, and on the other by the Strand Road, the Esplanade, and the Hooghly, with its sea of masts and rigging. In the center of the Maidan stands Fort William. The High Court and Government House looks over its broad expanse. Here, too, are the Eden Gardens, and that collection of statues increased with each outgoing viceroy. The inscriptions on some of them are very fine and full of patriotic enthusiasm. That on the equestrian statue of Lord Mayo is grand. To the honored and beloved memory of the Earl of Mayo, humane, courteous, resolute, and enlightened, struck down in the midst of a patriotic and beneficent career on the 18th of February, 1872, by the treacherous hand of an assassin. The people of India, mourning and indignant, raised this statue. So also is that to Sir James Outram, where they say, His life was given to India. In early manhood he reclaimed wild races by winning their hearts. Ghazni, Kelot, and Indian Caucasus witnessed the daring deeds of his prime. Persia brought to sue for peace, Lucknow relieved, defended and recovered, were fields of his later glories. Faithful servant of England, large-minded and kindly ruler of her subjects in all the true night, the Bayard of the East. It is towards five o'clock in the afternoon when the miasmic mist that rises daily at this hour 
and only lifts the following morning at nine o'clock, that the Maidan is seen to perfection. Then appear those magnificent equipages, the lumbering barouche with the pair of whalers, so-called because they are horses imported from New South Wales, with their attendant Sices. These native servants, in their long coats, girded with a sash of cords and flat-brimmed hats, are dressed in all kinds of fanciful liveries. Free play is given to pretty combinations of color, such as brown with old gold, purple with scarlet, green and orange, blue and silver, black and white. The number of these sices, walking beside the horses or standing up behind the carriage, flourishing fly wisps, gives an idea of oriental magnificence. The Eden Garden, so-called after the sisters of Lord Auckland, who caused them to be made, at the rendezvous at that hour for all the children of Calcutta. And you see these pampered little darlings, dressed up in plush and satins, arriving in their own carriages, in charge of their ayahs, with one, or even sometimes two, men servants in attendance, ready to play at ball or cricket with them. On the Maidan, too, is seen the familiar sight of the troops of beasties, watering the roads at sundown. This primitive way of laying the dust becomes a great nuisance in crowded thoroughfares, when the blusey is as likely as not to spurt the contents of his skin into the carriage. Very curious figures, these beasties, look as they come up from the riverside with their inverted goat skin, the outline of the legs still seen, and slung full to bursting on their backs. They then begin to run along the road, ejecting the water to right and left of them by opening and closing sharply the small aperture. One would almost think that the municipality of Calcutta might have imported some watering carts by this time. It is a very funny sight to see a native squatted on the ground before his horse in a beseeching attitude, holding up to him a handful of hay, or again, whilst the carriages wait by the inn gardens, to see the servants collected around a hubble-bubble, drawing at it and passing it round in turns. There is generally a camp near the fort in the Maidan, and polo is played there in the afternoon. Passing the rank and fashion of the Anglo-Indian society, we drove to the Belvedere, the official residence of the Lieutenant Governor, Sir Henry Riders Thompson. It is a very beautiful house, and was the favorite residence of Warren Hastings. We came home round the other side of the Maidan, by Chowringi Road. The prison is the first building in this road, and number one Chowringi has become a familiar name for it. End of chapter 15, part 1